0: Early one morning over breakfast, an exasperated Pharaoh Amenhotep III, the almighty, all-powerful ruler of the great Egyptian empire, a man who surely had much better things to do today, dutifully read through a series of correspondence from some petty local rulers out in the land of Canaan. Incompetent but fawning, these small-town Canaanite chiefs were sniping at each other's cities and land, providing a low-stakes, low-level conflict that Amenhotep was now called on to deal with. The year was 1330 BCE, and the first letter in Amenhotep's inbox was from Abdi-Hepa, one of these local chiefs, begging for Pharaoh's assistance. Abdi-Hepa complained that two other nearby warlords had led their troops against Abdi-Hepa's land. Really Pharaoh's land, the chief was quick to point out. Not only had his enemies seized several towns, but they were allowing bandits to roam free. And these guys, too, were in danger of encircling Abdi-Hepa's city. He requested that Amenhotep immediately send archers. If not, Pharaoh would lose his land. The next two letters in the pile were from the Canaanite chiefs whom Abdi-Hepa accused of attacking him. They complained that Abdi-Hepa was full of it, that he had in fact started it, and they also requested that Pharaoh send troops to back their side. You can picture Amenhotep rolling his eyes. Yet, this exchange would prove very revealing for us. Abdi-Hepa was a Canaanite ruler over a tiny town of some 1,500 people in the central mountains of Canaan. His city was called Jerusalem. In the Akkadian language, this meant something like the established place of Shalem. Shalem was the Canaanite god of dusk, indicating that the city was considered to be his dwelling place. Jerusalem, when rendered into Hebrew, becomes Yerushalayim and then in English, Jerusalem. This is probably the first mention we have in the historical record of what became the essential city of Judaism, a tiny provincial Canaanite backwater in a state of tension with its Canaanite neighbors. We know that semi-nomadic people settled there more than 6,000 years ago, but there's no fixed date to when the city was founded. Nestled in the rocky, mountainous terrain of central Canaan, off the beaten track of the major trade routes, It wasn't high on anyone's list of desirable real estate. It wasn't much compared to its larger Canaanite neighbor cities like Gezer, Shechem, or Lachish. Still, it fell under the sway of Egypt, and it turns out that Abdi Hepa's letters to the pharaoh Amenhotep III revealed an entire ecosystem of international diplomacy that marked this moment in Near Eastern history. This had a huge impact on the Israelites, who would emerge sometime over the next hundred years. So last episode, we looked at how ancient Mesopotamian culture and history influenced the people who would become the Israelites, and in turn, the Jews. Today, we're looking at how Egypt's control of Canaan, or lack thereof, paved the way for the emergence of the Israelites around the year 1200 BCE. This is season five on the first thousand years or so of Jewish history. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. By the time Abdi Hepa of Jerusalem complained to the pharaoh around the year 1330 BCE, the Great Pyramid at Giza was already more than a thousand years old, Forever and ever, it seems, Egypt had been the dominant player in this corner of the world. The regular and predictable flooding of the Nile River, the longest in the world, gave rise to a mighty empire wielding great influence, backed, naturally, by a powerful military. By this era, we're seeing some of the greatest and most famous rulers of Egypt. Thutmose and Seti and Ramses II, Akhenaten and his son, Tutankhamun. These were the guys who really turbocharged the Egyptian empire into a mighty colossus, and key to that was control over Canaan, that narrow sliver of land in between Mesopotamia to the east, Egypt to the west, and several other competitors to the north. The letters that Abdi-Hepa and his neighbors sent to Pharaoh Amenhotep were preserved in an archive. It was discovered by archaeologists in the 1880s in the city of Amarna, which was the capital of Egypt during the 1330s BCE. Some 380 letters record diplomatic correspondence between the pharaohs and their client kings in Canaan over a period of about 30 years, giving us invaluable insight into what was going on just before the Israelites arrived on the scene. The Amarna letters, as they're called, are our earliest examples in history of international diplomacy at work, showing how the soft power of negotiation, communication, and rules and norms are crucial to wielding influence, creating an empire, and sustaining it. The Amarna letters tell us that the Egyptians were struggling to hold Canaan together in the 1300s. The last couple of pharaohs hadn't launched any substantial military campaigns to keep the region locked down. The Egyptians ruled Canaan from Gaza, yes, the same Gaza that exists today, which gave them pretty good control over the low lying areas along what is today the Israeli coast, places like Ashkelon and Jaffa. But the interior of Canaan, the mountainous highlands between the coast and the Dead Sea where Jerusalem is located, that was a lot harder to control. The Egyptians had divided up the interior of Canaan into a zillion little city-states, like Jerusalem, each with its own appointed ruler, like Abdi-Hepa. As long as they stayed loyal to Egypt, kept paying the big man, and facilitated trade, they were pretty much allowed to do what they wanted. As long as they didn't cause trouble, the Egyptians kept out of things, and the city-states had their independence, more or less. But as we saw from Abdi-Hepa's letter, these client kings were indeed causing trouble. Understanding why they were causing trouble tells us how the Israelites came onto the scene. There's something else very interesting about the Amarna letters. They cover the reign of not only Amenhotep III, but also his son, Amenhotep, can you guess, can you guess, the fourth. Pharaohs are like Led Zeppelin albums, one, two, three, four, classic rock joke, okay. Anyway, it was the son, Amenhotep IV, who built the new capital at Amarna, where he kept all this diplomatic correspondence. But what makes him especially fascinating when looking at Israelite history is his belief in only one god, Amenhotep IV rejected the polytheistic religious practices of the Egyptian state, their long list of gods who performed any number of essential functions. He re-centered Egyptian ritual around one single god, the sun god, Aten. He went so far as to insist that Aten wasn't just the supreme god of Egypt, but the only god. He changed his name from Amenhotep IV to Akhenaten, which means something like, of great use to the god Aten. Akhenaten went on a religious rampage, closing all the temples of the other gods and replacing the previous system of peaceful coexistence with an austere and violent intolerance for any deviation from the cult of Aten. Atenism became the state religion. What we've got here is the very first instance of monotheism around 700 years before the Israelites adopted it for their own national religious system. Much has been made of this connection. The Egyptian flirtation with monotheism occurred right around the time that people supposed the exodus took place. You'll inevitably hear that Moses and the enslaved Israelites brought Akhenaten's ideas across the Sinai desert, depositing them in the Promised Land and swapping out Aten for the Israelite god. A direct line between Akhenaten and Israel that left the imprint of Egyptian monotheism on the Jewish people. The problem is that this theory is probably overrated. It's not like last episode, where there's a direct link between, say, the story of Noah and the flood with the Mesopotamian flood myths. Besides the existence of monotheism itself, the Israelites didn't leave a trail of clues leading back to Akhenaten, and it's much more likely that their monotheism was their own development, which we'll talk about later on. It's unclear to what extent they would have even been aware of him, for Akhenaten's monotheistic impulse didn't last too long. The Egyptians hated it, and when Akhenaten died, it was left to his son to, I'm sorry to say, make Egypt great again. His son was none other than the famous boy king of Egypt, King Tut. King Tut, or Tutankhamun, and the pharaohs after him systematically destroyed everything having to do with Akhenaten's cult, tearing down his temples and erasing Akhenaten's name from the list of kings, he was almost lost to history until his tomb was discovered in the early 1900s, just a few years before King Tut's. But Akhenaten's idea lived on. For another thousand years, different cultures, philosophers, and nations would continue to play with this idea that he was the first to articulate that there was one supreme god, and that this god cared about and was active in the lives of individual human beings. Pharaoh Akhenaten was important for another reason having to do with the Israelites. His obsessive focus on Aten left little time or interest for minding Egypt's business in Canaan. Under him, Egypt struggled to maintain a tight grip on their vassal states. The problem was instability. With the Egyptians lately struggling to hold on to both Canaan and Syria, everyone in the region was acting up. The Canaanite city-states were picking fights with each other as these mini-kings saw an opportunity to grab an extra town, or were forced to defend their land against someone else. But an even bigger problem for the Egyptians was the empire in the north, coming down from what is today Turkey, the Hittites. A growing power in the region, the Hittites were moving south, grabbing up territory in Syria on their march towards Canaan and Egypt's doorstep. To make a very, very long story short, this all culminated in the Battle of Kadesh in the year 1274 BCE. It's one of the great battles of ancient history, and perhaps the single best documented one, down to the intricate details of which platoon was standing where. Pharaoh Ramses II, who was arguably Egypt's greatest ruler of all time, he met his Hittite counterpart on a field of battle straddling today's Lebanese-Syrian border, north of Israel. Some 5,000 chariots and perhaps 100,000 men fought a pitched battle, in which Ramses emerged as a heroic warrior. But afterwards, both sides claimed victory, and the battle was a draw. The Hittites got to keep Syria, and the Egyptians had to retreat back to Canaan. Fifteen years later, the Egyptians and the Hittites signed the world's very first peace treaty, forming an alliance against the Assyrians to the east. Okay, so this is all very interesting, but this is a podcast on Jewish history. What does all this have to do with the Israelites, who don't even exist yet, by the way? The answer is that by the time we get to the 1200s BCE, the Near East was falling apart. This was one of the major turning points in human history. It's called the Bronze Age Collapse, and I'll be coming back to it in a later episode. But in short, Egypt was licking its wounds, the Hittite Empire suddenly collapsed, Assyria and Babylon in the east were on a downswing. We're not quite sure why all this happened at roughly the same time, but it may have been due to climate stress, like severe drought and several major earthquakes. We do know that the Mediterranean economic system completely fell apart, and large cities were destroyed or suddenly abandoned. People throughout the Near East were pulling up stakes and moving around, causing more violence and instability. The point is that this collapse and instability in the 1200s BCE provided fertile ground for new people to emerge in Canaan, people like the Israelites. But also, a mysterious group whose challenge the Egyptians, Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would be preserved for all time. These people came from the sea. So to recap, the Egyptians had been the dominant superpower in Canaan for a long time. They had subjugated the various Canaanite city-states, like Jerusalem, placing them under local rulers who would be loyal to Egypt. But by the 1200s, Egyptian power had weakened, many of the Canaanite city-states were left to fend for themselves, and this power vacuum created the space for new people to arise seeking their independence. This explains how it was that the Israelites were able to emerge as a distinct people during this era. But that's for later. In the meantime, a horde of newcomers descended on Canaan with such extraordinary speed that both the Egyptians and the Israelites would extensively record the phenomenon. They were known as the Sea Peoples. Their origins are murky, and they weren't a single group of people but many groups of people we can't say with certainty exactly where they all came from and why. But there is one group of sea peoples in particular who interests us. The Egyptians called them the Pelisets. The Israelites originated them in a place that the Hebrew Bible calls Kaftor, which was the Greek island of Crete. And they understood these people as their sworn enemy and called them the Philistines. Now, you guys are lucky. So lucky. Because it just so happens that this podcast is coming at a time when cutting-edge research has redefined our understanding of who these Philistines were. Which saved me from having to wade through endless reading about dirt strata and radiocarbon-dating olive pits, and you from having to hear about it. I did read one book chapter. I thought I could do it. I've watched the Indiana Jones movies a hundred times and I figured I could totally understand this archaeology stuff. And at that point, it was suggested that maybe I should just stick with modern Israeli history. But here we are. We may as well. I'm going for it. The city of Ashkelon is today one of Israel's major ports, but it's also one of its oldest cities. It was first settled as far back as about 8,000 BCE, before even Jerusalem, and it was a major Canaanite city too. Not too long after the Philistines first arrived there, they had the sad occasion to bury several infants in the floor of their homes, who were, it is thought, perhaps the grandchildren of those first Philistine arrivals. In 2013, a Philistine cemetery was discovered nearby, and from those children and the bodies of the cemetery, scientists were able to extract DNA. Genetics showed these people most likely came from southern Europe, primarily Greece, In addition, the pottery they left behind is distinct from their neighbors in Canaan and Egypt and resembles very closely Greek art and style, all of which suggests that these sea peoples did indeed come from the Mediterranean Sea, as the Hebrew Bible says. Although the Israelites portrayed them as a monolithic people in opposition to Israel, we know that isn't really true. Archaeology tells us that the Philistines mixed in with their Canaanite neighbors, adopting a lot of their culture, religion, lifestyles, and language. Indeed, they left no inscriptions of their own that we found. They traded with the Canaanites and Israelites. They were all in and out of each other's territory. And over time, too, the Philistines left their own mark on the people around whom they'd settled. Wherever the Philistines settled, we find pig bones. But we don't find pig bones in an area where the Israelites were living. Scholars have suggested this might be the origin of the Jewish distaste for pork. The Israelites refused to eat pig because that's what their hated Philistine enemies were doing. It was a way for the Israelites to define themselves in opposition, to forge an identity that was distinct from the people they considered their enemies. Pretty cool. Origin of kosher food. But maybe the biggest impact of the Philistines, or at least the most memorable, is the name that they bequeathed to the entire region which far outlasted their own existence. What the Israelites called Philistii became, through Greek and now into English, Palestina. Palestine. Okay, so let's pull it all together. Egypt was taking hits all over the place and losing its grip on Canaan. Pharaoh the Ramses II's battle at Kadesh against the Hittites had weakened the Egyptians. The Canaanite city-states, like Jerusalem, saw this and not only started fighting with each other, but also rebelling against Egypt for their own independence. On top of that, the Sea Peoples invaded all along the coasts, amongst them the Philistines. Though actually they arrived mostly a few decades later. But in any case, things are chaotic and unstable, and Egypt desperately wants to gain back control. Now, imagine you're the heir to the Egyptian throne, and we all know how royalty works, the first son is the heir, then the second, so on. Once you get beyond a few steps, you're so much the spare that probably no one pays any attention to you. Life should be good. You still get to ride around on Chariot Force One, you still get to date hot Egyptian celebrities, and you're in no danger of ever having to, like, be responsible. Ramses II's 13th son was named Merneptah, and unfortunately for this guy, all 12 of his older brothers died. He was in his 60s by the time he came to the throne, and now he had to try to fix all these problems and regain Egypt's glory. Within a few years, Pharaoh Merneptah found himself battling a combined force of Libyans and Sea Peoples invading Egypt. In the year 1208 BCE, Merneptah secured a great victory against them in Egypt. He carved descriptions of the battle all over the place, highlighting his military prowess and the statistics of how many warriors he killed and captured. But in one place, he added something interesting. In a chunk of basalt stone ten feet high, he carved not only the description of this victory against the Libyans, but added a few lines about a military campaign he had waged in Canaan against the city-states that had rebelled against Egypt. He writes that Canaan had been plundered and the cities of Ashkelon, Gezer, and Yanoam destroyed. And then he adds the famous line that I opened up this season with. Israel is laid waste and his seed is no more. This is the first mention in history that we have of this Israel, the year 1208 BCE. And what's interesting here is how the name is used. Unlike Ashkelon and Gezer and the others, Israel isn't used to describe a place but a people. Scholars have really debated this one sentence a lot over the last hundred years. What does seed mean? Does it mean literally grain, as in the Egyptians destroyed Israel's grain supply? Or is a seed a reference to reproduction, that the Egyptians so totally wiped out Israel that they could no longer produce children? If it's grain, well that would suggest that the Israelites were a settled people in a specific spot, and the Egyptians considered them yet another Canaanite group who they were fighting against. Because in order to accumulate enough grain to be worthy of a military attack, they would have to have been located in one spot for a while. But if seed is just a reference to the Israelites' progeny, that could suggest the Israelites were more wandering nomads without any land to their name. It's also possible that the Egyptians saw them as both, Not aimless wanderers, but a distinct group of Canaanites, just without their own territory. It will be several hundred more years before we find another reference to Israel outside the Hebrew Bible. And so the Merneptah stele, as this basalt carving is called, leaves us with a profound question. Just who were these Israelites, and where did they come from? Okay, so last episode we looked at how ancient Mesopotamian culture influenced the Israelites down the road. And today we looked at the relationship between the Egyptian superpower and its influence in Canaan. By the 1200s, Egyptian power had waned, clearing the way for other people to make a go at independence, including the Philistines, Canaanites, and as we'll see, the Israelites. And we looked briefly at the beginnings of Jerusalem, which by now is a very small Canaanite city-state. The premise of this season here at Jew I Don't Know is how the Jews became Jews. And the answer is that first they were Israelites. But how did the Israelites become Israelites? Well, they told their own story in the Hebrew Bible. Next episode, we'll try to unravel the mystery. Here's a hint. I can't promise you definitive answers. As always, you can check out my website at JewIdon'tKnow.com and email me at JewIdon'tKnowPodcast at gmail.com if you're enjoying this podcast, please tell others. And wherever you listen, please feel free to go ahead and leave a five-star rating. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lee Heath wrote. see you later.